Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday, which means that we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and I'm excited to introduce today's episode. Today, Daniel Jones is talking with Travis Warren Cooper about his recent book, The Digital Evangelicals, Contesting Authority and Authenticity After the New Media Turn. And in this episode, they explore a wide range of questions and issues that Travis works through in his book, and their conversation really is a great starting point for anybody who's interested in media studies, religious studies, and how these disciplines overlap and intersect in very productive ways. So I will let them take it away. This is Mediatizing Evangelicalism, Authenticity, Identity, and Power with Travis Warren Cooper by Danny Jones. Take it away. Welcome, everybody, to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Danny Jones, and my guest today will be Dr. Travis Cooper from the University of Indianapolis. Dr. Cooper's work is in the anthropology of religion, specifically with Christianity and media. And today we're going to be chatting about his book, The Digital Evangelicals, Contesting Authority and Authenticity After the New Media Turn. Dr. Cooper, Travis, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, I really enjoy enjoyed the book. I found it incredibly useful for some things that I'm working on. And for those who are new to either uh, media studies or the critical study of evangelicalism and Christianity, I think it does a great job of introducing both fields and the best scholarship in both fields to give somebody a really good footing to stand on to start a project or to think through what we are seeing now and historically, the anthropology of Christianity and media. Um, so very well done on that. So Travis and I share a connection to Missouri State University. We're both uh, alum from uh, MSU. And um, so shout out to our, our former department. <laughs> but I would love to ask you to give us like a short bio of the book, how it came about, what you know some of the mechanisms were for um, inspiring it. Yeah, so um, the book really started during my first year of my PhD. So I um, had been taking classes, kind of getting all that, the early grad school stuff out of the way. And in 2011, there was this big ordeal on Twitter, right? This um, this curious writer, Rob Bell, published this new book, not his first, not his, not his um, only controversial book, right? But this really controversial one came out in 2011 called Love's Wins. And um, there was this big kind of maelstrom of online rhetoric and discourse about what's happening here. Is this heresy? Is this um, heterodoxy, right? What's going on? And I thought really at that moment, like, I have to find a way to study this. What what should I study? What should I write my diss on? It has to be something like this. That's really where it started. That ended up being a chapter kind of in the middle part of the book. Yeah, I think when I sat down kind of with my advisor, Candy Brown, who was a kind of a one of the foremost scholars of evangelicalism, we were like, what needs what needs studied? There's lots of good histories, right? What could we do? And it was really technology and digital media that had been kind of understudied at that point back in 2011. So we had all these blogs taking off and all this Twitter stuff. And I just wanted to kind of sit down and look at some of this stuff, look at the rhetoric, figure out what was happening in a cultural sense, in a technological sense. So that's kind of how the book took off. 
And then over um, the next few years, it was just watching these online venues, if you will, the blog stuff, the Twitter stuff, the imagery with Instagram, the Facebook and all that kind of thing. And then doing these case studies and bringing them together. So that's kind of the briefest outline of how the book took off was just trying to figure out what is digital media? How are these groups that we call evangelicals, evangelicalism, how are they using it? How are they changing it? That kind of thing. That's a brief bio, I guess. So it's kind of an irony, isn't there, with like when we talk about, and you address this a little bit in the book, what new media is, some of the difficulties with processing what is new media and how fast new media becomes old media. Yeah. Um, And then sort of projecting that into lenses to look at earlier forms of Protestantism in the Americas and how media really are quite central to a lot of what we study, but we don't quite use the same media lenses that we could be that the book deals with. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate a lot of like thinking back, like, you know, use pamphlets and use of, you know, all these other things, uh, the media ecologies that we should really be focusing on that sometimes we get overwhelmed with, you know, people talk about the Bible as this single mm-hmm. concrete thing. Um, and that takes focus away from the, the realities of media ecologies that really produce the stuff that gets called evangelicalism mm-hmm. or what people who identify as evangelicalism really use on the ground, so to say. What did that look like to you when you started diving into that? Because new media, so to say, you know, blogs and you go back to like MySpace, you know, right. and, and those, <laughs> those things that become sites of the negotiation of authority and authenticity. And how, you know, things that, you know, it, it kind of seems like those things would butt up against quote unquote authentic experience or some of the negotiations and the discourses in what we call evangelicalism on, right. you know, is this authentic? Is this legitimate? And then the, the journey to that, you know, cursed virus that we've been dealing with <laughs> and how that created social realities that weren't really necessarily new, but more intense maybe if you right. walk us through how, how you yeah oh i love this question because it kind of gets at several different venues that i wanted to focus in on in the book but um the new media terminology is so fascinating because it's it's such a misnomer right like it's um mm-hmm. we call it new we know it's not new right we know that there's mm-hmm. this very very long history of technology and writing the evangelicals have used all the way back right all the way back to martin luther so i have this history mm-hmm. chapter and it's kind of curious to have a, a history chapter like this in a book on digital media but the book is trying to unpack these these um i call them media ideologies right so these mm-hmm. um these ideas that structure how people how actors on the ground put their technologies to use. So media ideology as a as kind of this idea that tells you this is how you ought to use this technology, whatever that is. So I wanted to figure out where those ideologies started. So way back before the new, right? And to figure out how whatever we're calling this new digital stuff, what ideologies were circulating before we got to this point. So I started with Luther and kind of traced back these discourses and kind of found in you'll see this in the intro to the book, but kind of found this tension. Scholars like to find, right, this one, this one kind of focal point. For me, it was this division between what I call um, like media sincerity on the one hand, being very um, sincere and immediate 
communicating clearly to another person, preferably like um, face-to-face, right? That's kind of the sincerity. And then what I call media promiscuity, the power of mass media, writing, publication, the printing press, all the way up to digital media, right? The, the power to be able to spread a discourse very widely or have the potential to spread very widely. And um, my claim in the book is kind of the evangelicals are divided, right? They feel these two impulses. They want to be sincere and immediate, right? But they want to be able to spread their texts and their discourses and their good news, so to speak, as far as possible. So why not use these media, right? So it's, it's very cool because um, we have these media ideologies. We call them new, but they're very old, right? They've been around for hundreds of years. They're these ideas that Christians have that they've been debating about their texts, right, for a very long time. And in that sense, they're very old. They're very ancient, <laughs> these discourses, yeah. these ideologies. <laughs> yeah. So looking at the way that people use media historically and now where we're at today, what's the use of a media studies lens for instance for religious studies students? What does that bring mm-hmm. to the table for them to understand from an anthropological, sociological approach to the study of Christianity or any other social movement for that matter? Because I think really the book lays out a, a really great map for people to look at social mm-hmm. movements and how media is used to create and contest authority and authenticity. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. That's one I routinely kind of bring up in my religious studies classes when I'm teaching about media and even when I'm teaching about other things where media kind of sneaks in the back door, right? But I think the main thing I go to is that we often talk about religious people, whether they're evangelicals or whatever they are, as sort of being these um, people that do things and these media that they use their technology is secondary or consequential or something like that. Um, And Mm -hmm. I like the media ecology approach because it actually talks about how we have these media and in a way they're defining us, right? We use them and in a way they're secondary, but they're actually working to define our boundaries, define our identities, define kind of our everyday life pattern that sort of thing. So you mentioned earlier the question about who are the evangelicals, right? And we don't want to get too too detailed into that. It's a whole podcast in itself, right? But I think the question of these media constituting boundaries is huge. It's a big deal. Like they, that's what these media do is we use them. And then we have these media that are floating around people can consume and they use these as sort of the ways to draw discursive lines in the sand, so to speak, and to say, this is the boundary. Here's what's in and here's what's out. And I think the media ecology perspective is fantastic because it shows students that these aren't just secondary things, but they're actually kind of foundational to human existence. We use these media and they transform us as we use them, that sort of thing. That's kind of the, the tack I like to take. Yeah, definitely. It seems like it, it's a good opportunity to challenge or probe like what counts as a primary text or what is Mm. the primary and you you work that backward and you talk about what historically has been called sacred text or whatever and you think of those as media and you materialize that and sort of demystify that and looking at things in their historical setting uh, i think media studies is a really it's a really great opportunity for us to like stop and say think about this act of communication where does it come from where is it sitting how is it understood um, and, you know, how is it understood, like, you know, going back to the media ecology, where is the primary text, so to say? And I, I found that right. it's, it's, that's a, you know, in any conversation, it's a good way to get people thinking about how they consume media 
and mm-hmm. and how these you know sort of pictures of the world are created through the assumptions that we often have about what is that that base text or whatever. And right, I think oftentimes right. people are very surprised by what they find when they start picking up those threads. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then the material analysis that of thinking about like algorithms and how those things create normalcy that we tend to think mm-hmm. as neutralities or baselines. Um, the fascinating and, and, and fantastic work being done that deals with uh, race and algorithms. And to use that right. to think about how religious discourse, like any other, is racialized or how class and uh, gender and sexuality shape those things. Um, and I think yeah. the, the media study sort of bounces backward and it, it makes us think about the media that we are processing today and how we co-evolve with those technologies and how that has happened in the past. And I think sometimes yeah. it's helpful for students too that may not be super ready to mm-hmm. deal with critically analyzing some, you know, what they consider to be a primary text or whatever, but mm-hmm. to allow them to have those or to help them build those tools to be more critical. Um, I think this is a really good springboard for something like that. Yeah. yeah. Kind of springboard off that. You mentioned things like spatiality and temporality and geographies mm-hmm. and how those themselves are negotiated, right? So like, you know, thinking about uh, devotional practices, practices, if you will, themselves and how those things are done digitally now and how mm-hmm. people had to renegotiate whether those were authentic right. or not. But media in general always redraws the lines for how we understand space and time and that sort of thing. Um, and you're dealing in, you know, one of the part of the book, you deal pretty heavily with uh, congregations in the Midwest, but it's interesting mm-hmm. because that space is and imagine space, both the Midwest itself, but then as you deal with, and I, I want you to kind of flesh this out, but uh, using the, the concept of public and what it means to be a public or to use a lens that analyzes the public. So what does that look like with media studies for religious studies to think in terms of publics and how media redraws the lines for how we think about space and time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I found Michael Warner's concept of the public to be super helpful because um, as sort of a social theorist, right, I'm wanting to study how certain groups, in my case, religious groups, evangelical groups, post-evangelical groups, I want to figure out how they're working as these as these kind of social collectives. That gets very complex very quickly when we're studying people who live in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and yet are communicating together frequently on these mass technologies, right, that we hold in our pockets and we can sit at the bus stop and tweet and um, sit in a coffee shop and write a blog post, that kind of thing. So it gets very complex. How do you define like a social collective when people are sort of dispersed? So for me, the concept of the public is fantastic because it emphasizes that kind of imagined nature that we get from Benedict Anderson from his book, you know, and um, this idea that groups aren't sort of rigidly defined, but they're defined in the mind, almost in the psychological sense, this projection, the sense of projection. And then these these publics, if you want to talk about them like that, 
are they're kind of um, imagined and sought after. So when we're when we're tweeting, right? Let's say you're a powerful writer and pastor and celebrity, right? When you're tweeting um, theology, you're tweeting out to this imagined group of people who may or may not be following you or respecting you, right? Or um, kind of kind of um, following your wishes and your theologies. But your idea is what this collective is, and you're kind of trying to bring that together. So what I love is about the public is that it gives you these tools to speak about something that can only exist when we have these mass media, these mass new and digital media. And I found it just this perfect container for speaking about these ideas of collectivity in a very complex world. We still have groups, right, that make decisions that that decide things like, oh, that sort of behavior is heretical, right? Or, oh, that's okay. That's, that's still within the Christian canon or within Christian authenticity, if you want to speak about it like that. So we still have these collectives making these, these kind of loose decisions, but it's done in, in, by means of the public. That's how I see it happening. I find it much more flexible and yet kind of more accurate than this idea of kind of a grounded community where there's very clear boundaries. So the, public's, the public is a perfect idea for the new media age, I think. Yeah, it works really well. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something interesting to trace there too when we think about how we often think about or talk about denominations and how very boxed and monolithic that seems sometimes, but the work on mm. publics is generally rooted in the multiplicity of the subject yeah. and the person. That you're not just one, like if you are a part of a public, you're not just that one thing. And I think mm -hmm. that's helpful too when we think about the difficulties of looking at, you know, who is or isn't or should we even define evangelicals. Um, but it is a discourse that people have a relation to in some sense or another and tracking that relationship and understanding how they engage this public that's created through uh, discourse and practice, that sort of thing, I think is really helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, and to think about also uh, how publics are created. What are the means that a public is created? What media are used? Um, you know, what mm -hmm. uh, exercises of power and affect? And you deal a little bit with uh, affect in the book, uh, affect theory. Mm -hmm. And how important that is for thinking about things like, you know, Instagram. And, you know, I, right. I was thinking today actually about how, you know, it's so easy sometimes to forget the media that come before, you know, mm -hmm. so you got like Pinterest, right? Pinterest wasn't inconsequential for religious discourse. Um, you know, exactly, and, exactly. And there's the whole, you know, uh, competition between, you know, the, the makers of media to make their competition obsolete. But, um, I think there's something very important to think about when we think about images and you talk about images um, in the mm -hmm. book as well. Was there anything that surprised you in that? Because uh, I know a lot of us who do work with like discourse analysis, um, we don't right. always center uh, visual studies and, and, and images in our analysis, but there really is a lot there. Uh, was there anything that really caught you off guard when, in that section of the book? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So when I was, um, I, when I was researching for the chapter and it's on this group called Socality, which is kind of this, uh, quasi evangelical group, slightly progressive, but even kind of, um, conservative, conservative theologically in some senses, but, um, they have this Instagram page and they kind of upload vast droves of this very high quality photography. So it's like, 
nature pictures, hiking pictures, lakes with like mist and sun kind of filtering through the trees, all this very, very wonderful photography. And um, so even researching for this chapter, it was like, um, what am I going to find here, right? What's here in terms of this data? Like, what is this in terms of data? It's this pretty imagery. What could it have to do with evangelical boundaries? And yet you start to look at it and it's there, right? They're using these pictures, thousands and thousands of pictures by now. And these pictures are kind of tagged. There's the discourse in the text, right? About, um, about behaviors, about how people should behave, about what a good kind of flourishing life is, right? Um, about how you can commune with God and nature and that kind of thing. And then more surprising than that, right? Because I guess that's kind of expected, but more surprising than that is the, the pushback, this site, this socality group on Instagram got when sort of critics would come against them, right? And they're, they're kind of critiquing the hashtag authentic and authentic living and socality and all that kind of thing. Like, is this too polished of a lifestyle? Is it representative of everyday life, right? Does everybody get to go out and hike and enjoy and commune with God in nature, that sort of thing? So even there where you have this, this seemingly kind of innocuous site with beautiful pictures, there's still this argument, this this boundary maintenance happening where people are like, um, how do we, how do we define these images? How are they serving the gospel? That kind of thing, this debate that's always ongoing about what the boundaries are. So I found that super, super fascinating. And, um, I remember, and this is kind of a, a side trail, I suppose, but I think it gets at your question. Um, I remember kind of floating this chapter to my advisors back when this was a dissertation before the book and the advisors being like, Oh, it's interesting, but Instagram, you know, what's it doing? What's, why do we need to know about Instagram It's pictures? Who cares about pictures? Right. And then, then by the end being like, Oh God, okay. Yeah. This is, this is fascinating. The rhetoric's there. And this, this long debate about imagery and how it's important and how it, how it sort of um, helps with flourishing life, that kind of thing. So I love that chapter, but it was very fun to write um, and very surprising as you, as you kind of alluded to. Yeah, I find that there's a lot, like Instagram is one of the more interesting um, apps for me when it comes to uh, thinking about uh, religion and media, specifically with like evangelicalism mm. or, you know, that because there's that negotiation of things like purity culture and, you know, some of the, the inconsistencies, if you will, there um, and some of the more traditional ideas that have come before purity culture and how they've evolved and they've co-evolved right. with things like capitalism and the relationship between you know, North American or evangelical, global evangelical uh, Protestantism and capitalism mm -hmm. in that relationship. And, and you see, I think, in, in uh, apps like Instagram, you see it kind of peeking out from behind the curtain from time to time. And you know, even with things like authenticity or these movements that sort of traffic in that language are still deeply wrapped up in, um, you know, heavily in things like white evangelical Protestantism and, right. um, and, and, and that relationship with capitalism. And there's always tensions with that, too. And you see it with, you know, people start to kind of recognize some of the tensions in their ideas. When things, you know, those ideas are just co-evolving with these technologies, uh, you know, they're a, they're a technology that strategically propagate ideas. And then at the same time, they also butt against older ideas of things like propriety, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and with a medium such as Instagram, that's very image forward, 
it's just it's a really fascinating mix to to look at and say yeah this is a great way to think historically about these things because this is not as new as we you know going back to what we were saying before it's not as new as people generally yeah. tend to make it out to be all of these conflicts all of these these clashes of things that seem to be uh inconsistent mm-hmm. you can go back to any era and go there are all sorts of things that appear inconsistent and that's how we understand things historically uh, is to look at right, those right. and to look at those positionalities as poles and plays of power um and that that's just that i kind of geek out on that from time to time i also want to get like the the sensory uh studies or the sensory approach that you you nip at a bit is really fascinating because yeah. you know like so the work of folks like uh jessica johnson who okay. you know did work on mark driscoll right so i will say the the one point when you were like you know rob bell is the most controversial person i was like oh, what about <laughs> rob bell because you know for for me rob bell was you know a, a type of controversy and then you had mark driscoll and they were sort of like yeah. two sides to the same coin of this like capitalist white evangelical north american christianity um and so there's just so much to really dive into to think about the embodied experience of media um so not mm-hmm. just the you know symbolic or you know not just the uh you know like the thinking about the, the absence of themselves, but what are bodies experiencing as they use these media and renegotiate things, you know, in that like material discursive assemblage. Yeah. That was really fascinating. I kept going, oh man, I want to dive into this more. I want to, you know, I really want to think about that more. Um, did you find yourself being pulled in that direction at times? And then, you know, is, is that something you think you might explore kind of more in detail later? Yeah. Oh, great question. Um, that that question is pertaining to the Instagram chapter too is very, very interesting um, because, you know, you start doing it. I'm studying these sort of 2D images on a computer screen, right? Um, but the more I got into it and the more I kind of analyzed the discourse of these images, um, you get into these these ideas of affects, moods, feelings, right? Um, and I, I, I coined this term haptic devotionality really to refer to the idea of this person um who you know presumably uploads images to instagram and then kind of sits through sits and filters through thumb by thumb looking at these images consuming these images and it's this devotional sense that really is formed um or kind of constrained and enabled through a social media platform right so it's this very interesting way to think about how these tools that we have, these digital media, how they shape even just um, comportment, right? How you sit and maybe it's leisure at the end of a work day or maybe a, a break during work and you're kind of sorting through Instagram liking pictures. And um, for the devotional aspect, you have these people who really want to bring their spirituality to this kind of digital mediation, right? Um, and it's not just the 2D, right? It's not just these images, but it's about, um, I think to use kind of their folk terminology, it's about being inspired, right? To be be inspired of the great outdoors and to feel this kind of sense of rapture 
rapture through your device, that kind of thing, be um, moved by the beautiful imagery and the texts that follow it, that kind of thing. So there very much is this embodied sense, um, even via Instagram, right? This 2D app, right? It's very, very much about embodiment and sensory kind of habitudes, that kind of thing. Um, and I argue in the chapter that Instagram sort of shapes how people they perform in the world, right? How they think about their world, how they see see the natural world, that kind of thing is being filtered through this this app, through Instagram. I think that's fascinating, fascinating stuff, really. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I, I tend to like really try to weave the like ideological analysis with the affect analysis um, because they're mm-hmm. inseparable in my opinion. You know, like an image is never holy agential you know it, it has that it has that right. surround like somebody comes to that with ideas um and in this sense i actually think i would love to see somebody cross um porn studies with studies of evangelicalism and using affects right. kind of rap so you know it brought up jessica johnson's book uh biblical porn mm-hmm. so there's this kind of this idea of the the way that ideologies shape the consumption of images and then the consumption right. of images, you know, bounces back and shapes ideology. Um, but there is, I think, a lot of work to be done in that regard. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, a lot of, you know, fruit work that, that is still ahead, I think, um, that would be really fascinating. Um, you know, because you even think about things like the way that political rhetoric is crafted, right? You think about like political mm-hmm. cartoons and, you know, not a word on the page, but the person who's viewing it knows exactly what's going on and that does something right it doesn't just have this linguistic as we generally kind of think of it you know uh effect it has a an embodied effect right it, i mean it changes what's going on in your brain it gets your heart pumping it, you know there's this whole embodied experience um that you know we we talk about right when we talk about what we generally call evangelicalism there is it's not just theology in the very cold on paper sense um you know there's no such thing as non-contextual theology right it's always embodied um and media are always embodied as well there's no such thing as disembodied media um which is fascinating to me thinking about how this uh runs with uh disability studies um, you know, and that's that's something that was really fascinating for me because I remember, uh, you know, growing up in a church that used uh, cassette tapes for their sermons, and those cassette tapes would go out to people who were not well enough to make it to church. And so, you know, generally we think about, uh, you know, I think you know we think about medium power. We think about how is this used to you know to influence these people or do this, but it's also opened up doors of accessibility. And that itself pushes back against what is authentic practice and who gets mm-hmm. let into the circle of authenticity, so to say. And this, of course, not always rainbows and sunshine, but it's definitely something to think about and you know to really dive into how has the new media that we understand uh, shaped realities for uh, different embodied experiences. Um, you know, be it either with you know, ability or race, or gender or sex, or, um, you know, how are these publics created, but also how are these bodies experiencing this communal activity through that? Um, that's a lot. I hope I didn't just like totally, uh, 
confuse no, you with great. all that. Um, but that that came to mind quite a bit uh, through that part, like the the Instagram part, um, because I think there's so much that we jump over with that that we end up losing because we don't stop and think, oh, but, right. but there are bodies at play in discourse. You know, there's no such thing as disembodied language. There's no such thing as disembodied media. Uh, you know, there's yeah. no such thing as disembodied, you know, whatever we want to call religion or, you know, is that has to play yeah. into it. Um, so that was really fast. I really appreciated that, uh, that part of the book. Yeah. yeah. I think too, if I can follow up, um, yeah, absolutely. the Instagram, the Instagram chapter transfers really well if we're talking about bodies and embodiment, right? Um, into that, the conclusion where I deal with the the digital baptism that was highly controversial, right? Over whether it was yeah. valid or authentic. That's their language. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a whole discussion in there about this virtual church that, that a pastor um, kind of created, this, this um, institution that has members from all over the world. And really, he, he created it intentionally so that people um, with disabilities could kind of participate in this 3D um, virtual sense and still feel like they're full members. So there's yeah. all this talk about whether, um, you know, virtual communion is authentic or is it heretical and digital baptisms, are they real, quote unquote, right? And yet there's very kind of, that's where the rubber hits the road. So one thing that has been on everybody's mind for some time now is how COVID-19, COVID-19 rather changed the reality for a lot of people, that their social lives and practices, their day-to-day was completely upended. And I know we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but the book deals with that, that it really caused a lot of people who would otherwise have been against or who would not have seen a lot of those practices performed through certain media. Um, they became more amicable to that. Um, and you talk about this in the book. Could you sort of thread that out a little bit and what that looks like and what the relevance is as COVID's become more normalized and we have to attack different problems. Yeah. um, So the COVID case was really, really fascinating, as you can imagine, right, for a scholar of digital media. Um, Most of the book, the research for the book had taken place before COVID. So the chapters were, you know, approximately between um, stuff happening 2011 all the way up to 2015, 16, whatever, even a little after that. But um, when COVID happened, I kind of put my ethnographer hat back on and went um, back into the field, so to speak, doing more kind of um, virtual ethnography, especially with the congregation that I talk about in the last two chapters of the book. Um, and it was it was very, very fascinating to see. Um, so here we have this little sort of hipster very um, postmodern emerging church, if you want to call it that, um, kind of a progressive evangelical or post-evangelical church, even by some means. Um, and they're using digital media and um, they aren't enjoying it, right? So they they miss the in-person and the um, what they call the in the authentic, right? The face-to-face. Mm-hmm. So again, these ironies just pop up full force. Um, and with COVID, they're just heightened even more, these kind of contrasts where we have this little church wouldn't even exist were it not for digital media, right? Digital media help it help it exist. That's they kind of um offload their theology and upload their theology from sources around the country, right? So even this little group wouldn't exist 
on the one hand without digital media, but then on the other hand, they're, um, they're not enjoying the sense that now we are forced to sort of meet virtually. They're finding it thin socially, right? That's a, that's a term that they use. Um, um, and they, they use it, but it's kind of begrudging, right? And they develop um, this sense of sort of media ambivalence is what I call it, where, where the, the media are good. They help us meet. Um, there's some good stuff that happens. We can still sort of see each other's faces a little bit, that kind of thing. But by the end of um, the COVID lockdown, everyone is just, and I think this was kind of a nationwide thing too, everyone's just exasperated. Don't want to do another Zoom meeting, right? They're just <laughs> tired of it and they're kind of yearning for what they call the authentic, right? So again, just it sort of played out those ironies, but even in a more heightened sense for me to see um, the use of media, but the resistance to it, the ambivalence toward media, but also kind of this constitution of the, the existence of the church itself through media in that sense. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm really curious about like the speed of change that people had to go through and how that mm. affected things like burnout. Um, I guess one of the things that's really interesting to me is, you know, will this create a sensitivity to people who that's been their norm prior to COVID that they had to live out in you know, people with disabilities or, uh, you know, people who were geographically separated or whatever, and they had to rely on technologies or social distances for whatever realities that they were, were living through, um, will that create, or, you know, I, you know, the normalizing of certain languages about depression and anxiety and, uh, you know, will this create a more, uh, you know, respectful future for certain differences in the long run, or will this just kind of, you know, as fast as we had to deal with it, we're going to just as fast throw it away and not learn like important lessons um, that I'm really fascinated with. Um, but yeah. I'm not really sure how that looks just yet. Uh, but I'm, I've been kind of keeping an eye on that. Recently. Yeah. I think it's probably um, maybe too early to tell, but my hunch is that this is kind of, this being COVID, right, has kind of um, laid the groundwork for accepting more of these sort of virtually oriented worlds. Um, and then again, this is just anecdotal, but um, I have students who their parents are church going, right? And once COVID hit, they went to online church. And then once COVID was over, or, you know, um, getting better at least, they never returned back to physical church because they liked the convenience and they felt they could focus better. And there's all these rationale given to not go back to in-person church. So not everybody, you know, it doesn't play out the same way. Some people, the digital kind of revolutionizes their religious life in that sense. Other people, they really, really miss the in-person gatherings, right? So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, I know I just visited my, my grandparents on the West Coast and um, my grandma She's been doing virtual church now using her iPad and kind of screen beaming it to the TV, right? And she doesn't go in person because she likes the likes the online version better. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you chatting with me today. Super fascinating book. Really wonderful example of a map on how to um, chart and do um, work at the intersection of media studies and religious studies and uh, the anthropology of Christianity. Um, so thank you very much for chatting with me today. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it.
Yeah, thanks, Danny, and the Religious Studies Project. This was great. Thanks for having me. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thank you.